Well, go and grab your Bibles this morning and open up with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. And as I see uh, kids this morning, just uh, it was a good morning for our, our church in that we had our promotion Sunday for our children's ministry and started a new kids' Sunday school class. And so we had some kids moving through some different rooms. And um, uh, just if you're visiting with us, what we do in our services is we have nursery for three and under for those who want to use it. Uh, we don't have children's church during our service. We think it's good to uh, have kids in the service at a certain age uh, with us. And that's part of the discipling process as parents try to teach their kids what it means to sit in church and um, how to listen and how to engage in the worship service. And uh, another reminder is we, with that, also have a cry room in back. So if, um, if you need to slip out for any reason with a, a child, there's a room that we have set up just for that that's in the back, and you are free to use that as you try to disciple your kids on how to be with us in corporate worship. But let's bow together for a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into Colossians 2. Father, we're thankful for this morning, and again, Lord, we're thankful for your grace that we sang about earlier that is uh, so freely given. Now, Lord, thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ that forgives sins. Thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ that that welcomes us in so that we come and meet with your people and approach your throne and turn to your word with the promise that your spirit works in our hearts and gives us insight and illuminates the truth of scripture. And so, uh, Lord, we come again this morning asking for your help as we do that. Uh, God, I pray that you would instruct your body that through the, the preaching of your word that we would be built up into maturity. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're going to start in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Um, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we spent two weeks looking at the last few verses of Colossians chapter 1, where in those verses, Paul gives this sweeping description of what Christian ministry is supposed to look like. There is a message we're committed to in Christian ministry. Paul says, Him, Christ, we proclaim. That's the message. Um, there's a, a method we're committed to in Christian ministry. Paul said our, our method is we're committed to fully carry out the preaching of the word. That's the method. And then there's a goal that we're after in Christian ministry where Paul says that we're working to help everyone mature, everyone uh, to present everyone mature before the Lord on the last day. That's the goal that we're after. Well, now that Paul's given sort of this uh, description, this overarching picture of ministry, as we move into chapter 2, Paul's going to show us how that ministry was being applied in Colossae. Okay, so get the connection. It's not enough that you have a, a philosophy of ministry. There are all sorts of ministry philosophies being bannered about in seminary classes by lots of guys who are never doing the nitty-gritty work of applying it in real churches and applying it to real people. Um, but Paul's wanting to show how this ministry philosophy he describes at the end of chapter 1 is actually being applied, how it's being fleshed out with the church in Colossae. Okay, so we're just going to dive in and start reading. It's in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read the first five verses. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now we're going to stop there this morning. It's a little bit tricky, the wording of verse 2, to follow through what Paul's saying. And so I'm going to try to spend some time making sure you understand what Paul's arguing for in this passage. And to do that, we're going to take it a little bit out of order this morning. Okay, so I want you to see there's a struggle that Paul explains at the beginning. And then we're going to look to the end of verse 2 where Paul's going to describe what his goal was. Okay, there's something that he's after. And then there's a danger that he's going to warn about. This is going into verses 4 and 5. And then I'm going to come back around and there's a, a, a means, that there's steps that Paul describes that we have to take to reach the goal. So you'll see this as we go through it. So here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, the struggle we feel. I want you to notice the conflict that Paul describes in verse one where Paul says, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now notice, Paul says that he is in conflict. And not just, he's writing to the church of Colossae, but he's not just in conflict for these people. You might remember from the first week of this study that the city of Colossae was in what's called the Lycus River Valley in Turkey. And there were three sister cities that were all grouped right there close to each other. There was Colossae, there was a city called Hierapolis, Paul will mention Hierapolis in chapter 4. And then there was another city called Laodicea, that's the city he mentions here. So three cities, Colossae and Laodicea were just maybe 9 or 10 miles apart. So think of it like Waycross to Blackshear. And what had happened is the gospel had been preached in all three of those cities. Churches had been planted in all three of those cities. And so as Paul's writing this letter to the church of Colossae, he's not just thinking about this church. He's thinking about this whole region. They're facing similar uh, struggles. They're both relatively the same age in terms of coming to faith in Christ and growing in the gospel. And so Paul has all of these churches in mind. And I want you to notice what Paul feels in his heart for these churches. Where he says in verse 1, I want you to know what a great conflict. That word conflict is the word struggle. What a great struggle I feel for you. And this ties directly into the end of chapter 1. Because you might remember the very last verse of chapter 1 is Paul's describing Christian ministry. One of the thing Paul, things Paul says is he says that he labors and strives to present them all mature in Christ. Labors and strives. And I made the point a few weeks ago that that word strive in Greek is where our English word agonize comes from. So, so Paul says that Christian ministry is largely, it's agonizing, it's struggling, and it's wrestling for the souls of others, for the faith of others. Well, when you come to chapter 2, verse 1, and Paul uses that word conflict, it's that same word, agonize, it's just the noun form of it. So, so what Paul's in essence saying is, Paul is saying, yes, Christian ministry in general is a struggle, it is wrestling, it is it is agonizing for the souls. It's agonizing for fate in people's lives. But it's not just a general sort of struggle. It's a particular struggle. So Paul's saying, this struggle that I feel right now, it is a struggle for you. So I am struggling. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm struggling on your behalf, Colossae. I'm struggling on behalf of your faith. So let me just say this to us as a church. So this is what Christian ministry looks like. If you want to know what it looks like, it looks like a soul struggle on behalf of other believers. 
or on behalf of other people. You are struggling. You're wrestling to see people come to faith. You're wrestling to see people who are under attack continue in the faith. You're wrestling to see people who are struggling continue to grow in the faith. That's ministry. And so Paul's saying, I'm in conflict. I am wrestling on your behalf. But how do we do that? So if we're called to wrestle on behalf of each other, how do we wrestle? How was Paul wrestling on behalf of these people in Colossae? Well, we know at least two ways. He's 1,500 miles away when he writes this letter. But here's two ways that Paul was, was struggling for them. One, he was wrestling for their faith by writing this letter. So Paul is giving them verbal instruction. Paul's warning them about the dangers that they're facing. Paul's teaching them about Jesus. Paul's reminding them of the truth of the gospel. Paul's giving them counsel. He's giving them verbal help. And so one of the ways that we wrestle for each other's faith is by speaking to each other. Okay, we wrestle for each other's faith through the conversations that we have. We, the, the way Paul says it in Ephesians is we speak the truth in love into each other's lives so that we're built up into maturity to look more like Jesus. So we struggle in conversation. Those of you who just read Pilgrim's Progress with us. One of the things I love about Pilgrim's Progress is most of that book is conversations. I mean, it's, it's describing, it's giving this allegory of the Christian life. So you have these believers, faithful and Christian and hopeful, who are making their way to the celestial city. But as they're walking to the celestial city, most of the book is conversation. So if they meet somebody else on the road, and they're not sure what to make of them, is this guy right or wrong, is he a true teacher or a false teacher, they sort through that by having conversations with each other. If they're walking down the road and they start getting weary on the journey, they encourage one another through conversations. If they're walking down the road and the path splits and they're not sure which road they should take on the path, they have a conversation with each other about it. And the point that Bunyan's making is that one of the key ways that we help each other in the Christian life is by having meaningful spiritual conversations. We talk to each other about things that matter. We, we have the freedom to give each other warnings in the Christian life. We, we try to sharpen each other's convictions. You, you can even go so far as saying this. If you're not having meaningful spiritual conversations with anybody, you're not discipling anybody. Parent, you can fool yourself. You are not discipling your kids if you never talk to your kids about anything that has any spiritual weight to it. You're not discipling anybody in your life if you're never having these sorts of meaningful conversations. So one of the ways that Paul is wrestling for their faith is through what he says to them in this letter. So we wrestle for each other's faith in that way. And then the other way that we wrestle for each other's faith is, is through prayer. And we know that because of what Paul says a little later in the book. Look forward to Colossians chapter four, where Paul's going to use very similar language. Colossians chapter four, look at verse 12. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, Epaphras is the guy who had planted this church. He's the guy who had first preached the gospel there. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bond servant of Christ, greets you. Always laboring fervently. No, just pause. So there's laboring. How was Epaphras laboring for this church? How was he wrestling with this and for this church? 
He's always laboring fervently for you in prayer. Okay, so here's another way. This is a key way that we're called to wrestle on behalf of each other's faith. We wrestle for each other by praying for each other. I mean, in a, in a real sense, prayer is a wrestling match, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how it works for you. When I pray, I'm wrestling against my own fallen flesh because my flesh doesn't want to pray. It wants to lose attention very fast. It wants to find something else to do pretty quickly. We're, we're wrestling with a spiritual enemy. We're wrestling at the throne of God. Think of the way that Jesus describes prayer. How are we supposed to pray according to Jesus? Well, he says that we're supposed to keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. So, so prayer is a wrestling. It's a spiritual wrestling for one another. And so that's one of the other ways that we wrestle for each other's faith. And let me just say this, hopefully, as an encouragement to you. Listen, church, you are being prayed for. You have people in this church who are wrestling for you on behalf of your faith. We have, uh, we have elders meetings just about every Thursday. And one of the things that we do in our elders meetings is we pray for you. We pray for specific needs in our church. We go through our church role to make sure that everyone in our church family is being prayed for. So this past Thursday, we prayed for uh, Justin and Mandy, and we prayed for Mark and Dina, and we prayed for Miss Suzanne, and we prayed for Miss Doris, and we prayed for Miss Ann, and we prayed for Wayne and Teresa, and we prayed for Miss Diane, and I'm probably forgetting a, a couple others. This is one of the ways we're called to wrestle for each other's faith. It's we go before the throne of God on behalf of each other, praying for each other. And this is one of the ways, church family, that we should be wrestling for each other. We go before the throne of God on each other's behalf, praying for one another's faith. When we're facing some challenge, we go before God, not, not just praying, God, get them over this sickness. God, help the Tesco well. That's fine, but underneath that, we're praying, God, keep his faith strong. Lord, help her rely on you as he walks through this. We struggle for each other. Do, do you ever feel that? Do you have people in your life? I mean, flesh and blood people who you could put a name on right now who you're struggling for in this way. Where you're trying to speak into their life to help them walk in the faith or come to the faith. Where you're going before the throne of grace and wrestling at the throne of God on their behalf. Okay, that's the struggle that we should feel in ministry. Here's the second thing. Number two, I want to see the goal we're after. So in verse two, Paul's going to spell out what he was struggling for in this church. So he's going to, he's going to press toward, there's a goal that he's wrestling for. Read the verse again, then this is the one we'll spend some time in to untangle. Paul says, here's what he's wrestling for, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Now if you look at that verse, there are several phrases and we're going to move past the first two there's their hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love we'll come back to those in a minute because those two phrases are leading toward the goal hearts encouraged knit together in love are leading to the goal that Paul's struggling for 
This is worded a little more clearly in some other translations. For instance, this is how the Legacy Standard words it. Legacy Standard is a translation that's basically an updated New American Standard. But here's how it words it. So that their hearts may be encouraged, having been held together in love, even unto, it uses the word unto to let you know this is the goal of it all. Even unto all the wealth, the full assurance of understanding. And then he restates that same goal in a slightly different way. He says, unto the full knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. So here's what I'm wanting you to get, you to get at. So Paul's wrestling on their behalf. And the goal of his wrestling is that they would come to the riches of full assurance of understanding. He's wrestling that they would come to the riches of full assurance. What does full assurance mean? Full assurance means firm confidence, deep conviction. So Paul's praying that their souls would be anchored, their feet would be nailed to the floor. How? Full assurance of the riches of understanding. That's what Paul's after. Paul wants them to understand. He does it. Make sure you dial back in for a minute. Paul's goal for this church is not just that they feel. His goal for this church is that they would know. He's wrestling that they would understand. It's so important that you get that. Because if you live your Christian life based on feelings, or let me say it another way. If you, and this is true for so many people, if you live your Christian life chasing a feeling, well, there was a feeling that you had in that service one time, and you spend your life chasing that next feeling, you, you'll get tossed around like a rowboat in a hurricane. Because it is not our feelings that anchor us, it is our understanding that anchors us. And so Paul is wrestling on behalf of this church that they would have the riches of full assurance of understanding. He wants them to come to grips with the wealth of understanding that we have in Christ. That's what he's trying to do in this letter. Is he's trying to help them come to grips with this wonderful truth that's ours in Jesus. So this letter is explaining who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished at the cross and what it means that we have Jesus in us, the hope of glory. So one of the key things that we're wrestling for in our lives and in our families and in our church is we want to be unshakable in our understanding of sound, Christ-centered truth. Okay, that, that's what Paul is convinced will protect them against the false teaching that's coming in to their area, is that they would know the riches of this understanding. Or he says it, so he says that same point in a slightly different way in the last phrase of verse 2. He says that he's wrestling that they would come to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Now, the New King James words it, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and Christ. But most translations word it, the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ. Now, Paul keeps using the word mystery. Just follow me for a minute. We've talked about the word mystery a lot as we've gone through Colossians, because Paul uses it over and over again. And the word mystery that Paul's using is it's some grand spiritual truth that was concealed in the Old Testament that has now been revealed. It's something that was there before, but it was kind of cloudy. 
But now on this side of the cross, the curtain has been pulled back and we can see it in full. And Paul is saying this grand mystery that sums up the totality of God's truth and God's plan, this grand mystery is summed up in Christ. Meaning that if, if you want to understand God's plan, if you want to understand the riches of what God wants you to understand, all of those riches are confined in the person of Jesus. So what Paul's wanting them to come to is a deeper understanding of Christ. That, that's the sum total of the mystery. So, so the, the plan of God's redemption that was hinted at way back in Genesis 3, that there's going to come a seed of Eve who's going to crush the serpent's head, that's been fulfilled in Jesus. God's promise to Abraham that through his seed all the, uh, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That has been fulfilled in Jesus. This grand plan where God promised a Messiah would come who would win salvation for his people. That's been fulfilled in Jesus. So Paul is saying all of these great promises of God, the grand story that stretches from eternity past to eternity future, this grand story is ultimately about Jesus. And Paul is wanting them to grow into a real deep understanding of who Jesus is. And look at what he says about Jesus in verse 3. Paul says in verse 3, In whom, that's talking about Jesus, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now there are a couple books in our Bibles that are called wisdom books. So think of Proverbs um, or think of Ecclesiastes. Those are books that show us how to live God's way and God's world. Those are books that, that are intended to help us see the world rightly and to help us know how to navigate through the world. But now Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom are hidden, not in a place, but in a person. All the treasures of God's wisdom are hidden in Christ. What does it mean that they're hidden in Christ? It means that they're only available to people who are in Christ. So it's like if your faith is in Jesus, you have been given the key to the vault. And in Jesus, you have all the wisdom that you'll ever need. Now, the point isn't that when you become a Christian, God sticks a thumb drive into the back of your brain. You become a Christian and he just downloads all the wisdom into your mind that you'll ever need. But the point is that in Jesus, you are now in the vault. All the diamonds of wisdom are there for us to mine out, to walk, walk around and enjoy. You just have to uh, rightly divide the word of truth, be a worker who's not ashamed. But all the wisdom that we need is available to us now in Christ. That's the point of verse 3. Now, you've got to remember why Paul's saying this. Because he keeps doing it, he keeps doing it in Galatians. Why does Paul keep coming back in Galatians and making the point that you and I have everything that we need in Jesus. Why does he keep coming back to that? All the wisdom you'll ever need is in Jesus. Well, remember, the, the false teaching that was seeping into this area had a, had a strong thread of Gnosticism to it. And the Gnostics taught that they were the ones who could lead you to deep wisdom. So that if all you had was the gospel, the Gnostics would say, if all you had was the gospel that Paul preached, you just sort of had the base package. You didn't have the premium package. You, you just had remedial spiritual life. But if you wanted deep spiritual life, well, you needed their further instruction because they had a special path to wisdom that they could lead you on. So you see why Paul keeps coming back to saying, no, no, no. In Jesus, you have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
In Jesus, you have everything that you need. Make sure you get hold of that. Every single person who is in Christ has this. There aren't separate levels of Christ- Christianity. Don't fall for that. It's not that it's not that lay people have this level of Christianity, but if you're a pastor, you have a different access to God. If you're a pastor, man, you can know real intimacy. When you get ordained, you get the the secret Bible decoder ring, and now you can understand everything in the Bible. No, no, no. You and I have the same God. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same high priest. We, we're, we have the same vault that's opened up to us. We rely on the same Spirit. In Christ, we have everything we need. And I, I just emphasize that because you will regularly hear some spiritual leader on TV or even in a pulpit who will make it sound like it's, it's clergy who have a, a secret level. Like if you're, if you're in the ministry, you really have the ear of God. If you're in the ministry, that's when you really get to hear from God. And so you need me to stand in between you and God because you can never figure it out on your own. You've got to have the person who's got God's ear. But that's not what you get in the Bible at all. Every person who is in Christ by faith, in Christ, you have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge for you. And, and this is also, I don't want to get on a rabbit trail here, but this is also one of the real challenges with the whole second blessing movement that is so predominant in charismatic theology. Do you know what that is? So it's the idea, that it just dominates charismatic theology. Um, it's the idea that, that you can, as a Christian, you can and should experience a special baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes somewhere after salvation. So you get saved, you have faith in Christ, and then somewhere down the road after you're saved, you get this extra experience where you get baptized by the Spirit. And it's when you're baptized by the Spirit, that's when you can really flourish in the Christian life. That, that's when you have all the tools that you need to really be effective. Maybe a good way to think about it would be think of it like gardening. Now, it's possible to plant and have a garden without any irrigation, with no sprinklers, with no fertilizer, with, no, you, with even no garden tools. You can have none of that stuff and you could still plant a garden. It would just be limited in what it could become. Well, in charismatic theology, that's what it's like to be a Christian without this extra experience. It's like you have a garden, but you don't have any of the tools that you need. So you're going to be really limited in what you can do and experience. But, they would say, once you get the second blessing... That's when you get your fertilizer, and that's when you get the sprinklers, and that's when you get all the tools that you need. Now you can really be effective, and now you can really have victory over sin, and now you can really do something for the Lord. And they're, they're, by the way, they would say the second blessing is normally accompanied by speaking in tongues, and that's the key way you know that you've had the second blessing. And I just want to highlight that to say lots of problems with that. But you see the problem with that in light of what Paul's saying here in Colossians chapter 2. In Christ... You have all the treasuries of wisdom and knowledge. You're not waiting for a second zapping. There's no extra experience that you need to really know and grow with the Lord. Listen to how Peter says it. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given. Notice that's past tense. What has God given to us? This is every believer. He has given to us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. What has God given to us in Christ? All things that pertain to life and godliness. That means everything you need to live a growing, fruitful Christian life, God has given you in Jesus. There's nothing extra that you need. Or here's the way Paul says it in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now what does it mean to be in Christ? That's salvation, right? To be in Christ means you're connected to Jesus in faith. Well, what does God give to everybody who is in Christ? Paul says, every spiritual blessing. That means the moment you're saved, you have access to everything that you need. Now, we have to grow into that. That's part of sanctification, is growing into that in both our knowledge and our practice. But it's all yours in Jesus. So everything you need to fight against sin, everything you need to move toward godliness, everything you need to live a fruitful Christian life, Everything you need to have an effective Christian ministry is yours through your connection to Jesus by faith. So, so don't fall for the idea that there's something extra out there. Like you're missing it. If I could just have that experience or if I was just in that position, then I would really, I'd really have it. That's not what Paul's saying. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are yours in Christ. And Paul's goal is that they would grow into full understanding of that. That's what he's after. Here's the third thing. Number three, I want to see the danger we face. Look at verse four. Paul says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now stop for a minute. So, so why does Paul keep hammering home the point that we have everything that we need in Jesus? Well, he keeps hammering home the point because he says there are people out there who will deceive you. That there are people out there who will lead you in a direction other than that. So Paul keeps teaching them about Jesus. He keeps rooting them in the gospel so that they won't be deceived. Okay, so he's hoping that what he's saying to them here will keep them from falling for the deception. So I've mentioned before the difference between Paul's letter to the Colossians and Paul's letter to the Galatians, which we studied just a, a couple years ago. So when Paul's writing his letter to the Galatians, he's writing to a church where false teaching was already rampant. False teaching was running roughshod through the church in Galatia. And so, so the letter to the Galatians is more like a, a dose of chemotherapy. He's writing to people who are already infected with the cancer, and so he's trying to get it out of their system. But that's not what Colossians is. It doesn't seem in Colossians like the false teaching is already infecting the church. It's just beginning to seep into their area. So Colossians isn't like chemotherapy, it's more like a vaccine. Paul is hoping that if he can get them rooted in who Jesus is and what we have in the gospel, that they won't even fall for the false teaching when it comes their way. And, and let me just say, Colossians is meant to have that same effect on us. If you will come to grips with what Paul is teaching about Jesus and the gospel in Colossians, you won't be shaken when the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door. 
You won't be shaken when the Mormon missionary shows up at your door because they teach a different Jesus. But if you're rooted in what Paul says about Jesus here, it's like you'll be inoculated against that. You'll be able to stand against that. And that's the danger. Now, and why is it that they might be deceived? Did you notice what Paul says about these false teachers? Paul says that they are persuasive. Do you see that word? These false teachers are persuasive. That means they are effective communicators. They are winsome. They're engaging. They string together some wonderful sounding arguments. They say some things that really grab your attention. But the problem is, the problem is it's empty underneath. The, the way that Jude says it is he describes false teachers as being clouds without water. So it's like a storm that moves in and there's thunder and lightning and it looks and sounds very impressive, but no rain ever falls. So it's like it's all sizzle and no steak. There's no substance to what they, they say. And so what we get from Paul, one of the things we get from Paul here is it's a reminder to us as the people of God, how do we evaluate teaching? Not by the style, by the substance. We evaluate what we hear by the content of it. So Paul is saying, these people who are coming in, they're going to sound very persuasive. They'll deceive you if they can. And so he's warning them to, to weigh what they're saying. And I would just step back and add, this is another one of the ways that we wrestle for each other. Listen to me, church. We do not watch a fellow believer walk into false teaching start following some false teacher without intervening, without sounding the warning, without doing everything we can to stop and get in the way. So we work for warning and to keep from being deceived. And then he says in verse 5, this is why one of the reasons why we say it doesn't seem like they've fallen for the deception yet, because Paul says in verse 5, for though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So it doesn't seem like they've fallen for the false teaching. It's not full-fledged in their area yet. And so when Paul looks at these churches, he rejoices at what he sees because he says that he sees good order and he sees steadfastness. Those are both, those are both military terms. So good order is the word that was used of a, an army that is in rank marching in lockstep with each other. So it's like Paul is looking at this church and there aren't stragglers. Everybody's marching in lockstep and he says they're steadfast in the faith. That means they are dug in, they're holding their ground, they're not abandoning the faith. So that's what he wanted to see. That's what he rejoiced in. There was a danger that he saw. And then here's the final thing. The fourth thing I want you to see is the steps we take. Now, now circle back around to verse 2 with me. So we skipped the first two phrases of verse 2 a second ago, and I want to revisit those now. So remember, the goal at the end of verse 2, Paul is struggling so that they'll come to full assurance of understanding in Christ. But the, the first two phrases in verse 2 are steps that they needed to take to reach that goal. Okay, so here are two things they needed to do if they were going to grow into full assurance of Christ. Look at the two phrases he uses. Paul says that their hearts may be encouraged. That was the first thing. Then here's the second thing. Being knit together in love. So the first thing that needed to happen is their hearts needed to be encouraged. 
Now, you know that when you see the word heart in your Bible, the Bible doesn't use the word heart the same way we do. So when we talk about your heart, what do we usually mean by it? Just what you feel with, right? We, we put hearts, emojis on stuff to say, I love you. It's just an emotion thing. That's all the heart is. That's not the way the word heart's used in the Bible. Your, your heart in the Bible is what you think with. It's what you make decisions with. What you feel with, really, in biblical language, is your, your bowels. It'll say things like, I love you with the bowels of affection. That's really weird language. But it, it uses that kind of language because when you feel a deep emotion, you don't feel it here. You kind of feel it in the pit of your stomach. And so the Bible uses emotions mainly in that way. But your heart in the Bible is what you think with and make decisions with. So the Bible even says things like, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You think with your heart. You make decisions with your heart. You live your life by your heart. And so what Paul is struggling with, the first thing he's struggling with, is that their hearts would be encouraged. That means that they would be strengthened in their inner man. That they would be built up. The... the antonym with that, of that would be that they wouldn't be weary, that they wouldn't be weak, that they wouldn't be discouraged. Now, why is that such an important thing for growing into full assurance of the faith? What tends to happen in your life when you have a discouraged heart? I don't think this is just me. When I have a discouraged heart, I, I tend to be susceptible to every temptation under the sun. When I have a discouraged heart, I am much more prone to fall into other sins. In fact, there's an old, this is a fable, okay, just to follow with me. There's an old fable that um, the devil was having a yard sale and he had all of his tools, all of his wares laid out on a table for people to come look at. And a man walked up and started looking through all the tools and he was shocked by how cheap they all were, that here was the tool of lust and here was greed and here was worldliness and they were all dirt cheap. But as he kept looking around, he came across this one tool that had an exorbitant price tag on it. And so he went over and said, why in the world is this tool so expensive? And the devil said, well, because that's the tool that makes all the other tools easier to use. That is the tool of discouragement. And once you can pry open somebody's heart with the tool of discouragement, it is easy to get every other tool inside. That's a fable, but, but there's some resounding truth to that, right? It's when we have discouraged hearts that we are prone to all sorts of trouble. So one of the ways that we wrestle on behalf of each other is we work to keep each other encouraged. We, we work when we see somebody whose who's feet are slipping. We work to help them find solid ground to stand on. When we see someone who, it's clear their vision's getting a little cloudy, we work to help clear the fog out of their sight so that they see things a little bit more clearly. We, we work to keep each other strong in the faith. That's the first thing. And then the second thing that Paul's struggling for so that they move toward full assurance is that they would be knit together in love. And I would add that this goes hand in hand with being encouraged. Because isn't it true you won't stay encouraged for very long in the Christian life if you try to live as a Lone Ranger Christian. You won't. You won't, stay, you won't stay encouraged for very long in the Christian life as long as you try to live a disconnected Christian life. If you try to live the Christian life on your own, disconnected from the relationships that God created us for, you will stay discouraged. But notice the order of this passage. Paul says that it is as our hearts are encouraged... 
And it is as we are being knit together in love that we then grow into full assurance of understanding. So, so that would mean, let's apply it to our church. It would be as our church, as we have encouraged hearts, as we are knit together in love, that we'll be able to experience an assurance in the riches of Christ in a way that churches who are constantly biting and devouring each other never can. So there's a depth in our experience of the riches of Christ that requires us to have hearts that are knit together in love. What I'm getting at is, so growing into full assurance in Christ is not just an intellectual thing. Do you get that? It's also a relational thing. This is one of the really unique things about Christianity. In the, listen now, in the Christian life, there is only so far you can go and so much progress you can make just yourself alone with a book. There's only so far you can go that way. And I say this as my, my personality naturally is I'm a natural introvert. You can lock me in my office and give me a stack of books and I would be happy to stay there for the next 24 days. I'm, I'm content with that. But the Bible is going to say there is only so much progress you can make in coming to full assurance just yourself alone with a book. That for us to really grow in full assurance of understanding in Christ, it takes not only personal study, it takes doing the hard work of relationships. It takes doing the hard work of loving each other to really grow the way that Paul's calling us to here. And he's saying what knits us together what knits our hearts together in church life, Paul says, is, is love. So it's like love is the relational glue. And I just need to say again, remember what love is in the Bible. Love isn't just feels in the Bible. Love is an action word. Love isn't just something that feels, it's something that does. So that Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 13, love is action, patient, and love is kind, and love doesn't demand its own way, and love doesn't keep record of wrongs, love doesn't hold grudges, and love doesn't seek itself, and, and love doesn't get easily irritated, and, and you could just keep going with the list, right? So Paul is saying, as our hearts are knit together, that's the relational glue, when we do the hard work of loving each other that way, and it's one of the necessary steps for growing into full assurance. So the other side would be, when we don't do the hard work of loving each other this way, it limits our growth in the Christian walk. When I don't do the hard work of being patient and kind, not keeping track of wrongs, not being easily offended, when I'm not willing to do that hard work, it stunts my growth in the Christian life. So, so really, practically, what Paul's calling for here is he is calling for a real, deep, practical, loving unity among God's people. It's one of the necessary steps to grow forward into full assurance of the faith. Now, if you, if you pause and think about that for a minute, have you ever taken time to think, really think, about how hard it is to have this sort of unity in church life? Because think of what church is. We are a body of volunteers. You're not paid to be here. You're here voluntarily. So there's the chance at any moment somebody could get their feelings hurt this morning and walk out and put some ridiculous post on Facebook and everything could be in turmoil within 30 seconds. And think of all the differences in a body of believers just this size. We're talking about a, a hundred, a little more than a hundred people here maybe. Think of all the differences just in this group. We have different ages. We have different backgrounds. We have different hobbies. 
We have different interests, vastly different personalities, different career paths, different career choices, different income levels. I mean, you, and you can just keep going. And then you add to that all the practical differences. We choose to do this, some choose to do that. There are a million different things that could keep us from having the sort of loving unity that Paul's calling for here. So how do we keep, how do we not constantly be divided? How do we move toward this sort of loving unity? I've had probably, I don't know, conversations with 12 or 15 people over the last couple weeks in our church life of uh, a chapter in a book by Nancy Wilson that was helpful to me. And it's where she, she talks in the chapter about the differences between principles and methods. And she makes the point that in the Christian life, we have principles that we all hold in common. There are principles that we live our lives by. There are principles that unite us. But within those principles, there might be all sorts of different methods. But, but what holds us in common are not all the different methods, it's principles. So let me just give you let me give you one area to think about this in, and we could talk about a million areas. So we have right now half a dozen ladies in our church family who are pregnant. Okay, so we have six ladies, probably I think most of them are here today, who within the next few months are going to be having babies. Okay, so what, what are the principles that those six sets of parents should have in common as Christian parents? Well, there, there are a number. I mean, we recognize one of the principles is we're called to protect our children and provide for our children. We recognize as Christian parents that we, we view our children not as biological accidents. We view our children as gifts from God who have value because they're created in the image of God. We recognize as Christian parents that God, God expects us to redeem the time that we have with our kids. We recognize as Christian parents that we're obligated to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We recognize Deuteronomy 6 that we're called uh, to teach them diligently when we lie down and when we rise up and everywhere in between, meaning we recognize the onus that we're called to be the main disciplers of our kids. And there are other principles, but, but those are some of the principles that we all should unite around. But you realize that within those principles, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of different choices that these new parents will make just over the next few months not to mention the next few years. Think of all the different options in front of these parents who might be all united around the same principles. I'll, I'll give you a few of them. So for these new parents, how, how will you schedule your baby? Will you, will you schedule your baby at all? When will you feed your baby? When, when will you introduce cereal or baby food into their diet? And what order will you introduce that into their diets? What will you feed your baby? Will you breastfeed or will you bottle feed? And where will your baby sleep? Will you have a bassinet in your room or will you have a nursery? Will you, put the baby, will you put the baby in the bed with you? And what doctor will you use? And how will you approach doctoring and medicine in general with your baby? When will you introduce family worship? How, how will you incorporate family worship with this newborn? How will you catechize your children? At, at what age will you start intentionally educating? How will you educate? Private school? Well, which private school? Public school? Homeschool? Well, which homeschool material? Which method of homeschool are you going to use? Right, do you see all that? We could keep going. What about technology? So will you let your kids watch TV? What will you let them watch? How much of it will you allow them to watch? How about video games? Will you let them play video games? What video games? How often will you let them play video games? That's just like a little bit of the iceberg. 
And, and listen, I have opinions on everything I just mentioned then. I even have strong convictions on a lot of the things I just mentioned then. So then how in the world can we have all of those, all of those differences and yet, and yet still supposed to have unity? Or just to press it to those six couples who are expecting kids. How are they supposed to cycle through all of those different decisions? Well, we would say that they should pray about a lot of it. They should get counsel from other Christians. Mom and dad should hash out these different decisions and what decision they're going to make and why they're going to make a particular decision. They should come to some solid conviction before the Lord on how that principle is being applied in this decision. And then mom and dad should make a decision before the Lord and go with it. And recognize that there might be other moms and dads who on those issues might have different methods that they follow underneath those same principles. So we're called to be convictional. We're called to make convictions under the authority of the Lord that we think honor the Lord the best. You should be convictional. Every decision you make, you should be able to give a reason for it. You should be able to explain, this is why we think this decision is best for us. But then within that, we're called to be open-handed and gracious with one another when we have different methods within those principles. That, that, that's the only way you can keep any sort of meaningful unity in church life is that we recognize what the principles are that guide us and then we recognize how we're to treat one another with different methods underneath those principles. And so Paul is saying we have to be in church life knit together in love. And think of that language for a minute and I'm getting ready to wrap up. Think of the language of being knit together. I was just talking about parents. Uh, when, when our kids were little, our oldest, Wyatt, had this yellow crocheted blanket that he carried around with him everywhere. Did your kids have blankets? They might still have blankets that they carried around with them. He had this yellow blanket. He slept with it every night. He drug it around the house all day. It was most of the time filthy. And we had the hardest time just keeping that blanket together. I mean, by the end, we just had it tied in knots trying to, trying to hold it together. And one of the reasons why it was so hard to keep together is because kids, whether they mean to or not, just have a way of, of picking at stuff. And so you would watch Wyatt as he was taking a nap, and he would be holding that blanket, and if his finger happened to find a loose thread, guess what he would do with it? He'd pull it. And if his finger happened to hook in a knot that was coming loose, guess what he would do with it? He'd pull it. And so it was almost impossible to keep that together because he was constantly finding any sort of loose thread to pull on. Well, listen, church, we have a real spiritual enemy who is constantly looking for loose threads to pull. He is constantly looking for any sort of knot he can get his finger in that he can use to call all of, cause all of the threads to unravel. So we labor. This is one of the things we labor for toward each other. We labor not to let that happen. We labor to consider others better than ourselves. We labor to overlook petty faults. We labor to love one another. And we do that because the stakes are so high. Isn't it amazing to think that in part, our ability to grow into the riches of full assurance in Christ, in part, that's dependent on us having hearts that are knit together in love. So one of our prayers needs to be that God would pull those threads tight in church life. That there wouldn't be loose threads to pull on. 
so that we would grow into full assurance. That's one of the things we struggle for. So let's pray together and ask for God's help in that.